Good morning. It is great to worship Christ with you all today. Truly a joy to be with you. Uh, one of the last times I was here, I told a story of when Joe and uh, Paige Peltier and I visited Taylor University last year around Easter time. And something strange happened in the chapel service that Paige and I attended. Uh, we sang a song called Death Was Arrested. Now, I had never heard this song before. It was called Death Was Arrested. It begins with Christ's death, and then it talks about his resurrection. But right in the middle of the song, hundreds of people in this Taylor Chapel, maybe thousands, I don't know how many were in there, maybe millions, <laughs> sung this lyric together. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross Darkness rejoiced, as though heaven had lost. And then, suddenly, the band got quiet, and the room got quiet. And for first-time listeners like me, you're wondering, uh, wait, <laughs> is that it? Is the song over? Does it really end with, heaven losing, and darkness winning. What kind of chapel service is this anyways? <laughs> Fortunately, after a few moments, uh, the, the energy stirs in the room, the band gets loud again, and then we all sing together, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand, and that's when death was arrested, and my life began, and the whole place just goes nuts. <laughs> Actually, after the song, Paige and I saw this group of guys in front of us. The song ends, we just finished worshiping Christ, and these guys in front of us turn to each other, they start giving each other high fives and hugs. It was like the most meaningful, encouraging, moving moment. But part of what makes that moment of silence and waiting in the middle of the song so powerful is because often in the middle of our lives, we feel this same silence, this waiting, this gap between difficulty and resolution, between darkness and light, between death and and resurrection. And this, by the way, is part of what makes the day after Good Friday so meaningful. Many call this day Silent Saturday, because the day after Christ was crucified, just imagine this, his followers woke up the next morning with pits in their stomach, and they look around, and there's nothing but silence from heaven. God is silent Jesus is literally still in the grave, and it sure seemed like darkness had won. And it's almost as if God wrote Silent Saturday into history and into Easter weekend to remind every Christian who is in a season of waiting in darkness, I see you, and I want you to remember that resurrection is still coming. Darkness does not win and for every single Christian, no exceptions, your best days are still ahead of you. But what about in the meantime? <laughs> what is our hope when a season of our lives, or perhaps our entire lives, feels like one long silent Saturday? What is our hope during those times in life when it feels like darkness is winning? 
Well, as Joe just read very wonderfully in John 9, Jesus calls himself the light of the world, the light of the world. And today we are going to consider how this reality, who Jesus really is, can give us hope in times of darkness. So let's pray and then we will dive into this. Lord, shine your light onto us today through your word, by your Holy Spirit, in ways that will lead us to hope and to trust and to obedience and to joy, even even in times of darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why can we have hope in times of darkness? Well, according to John 9, we can have hope because with us in the darkness is a God who sees, a God who saves, and a God who stays. With us in the darkness is a God who sees, a God who saves, and a God who stays. Praise the Lord. Now, before we dive into this first point, perhaps your little antennas are up and you're like, wait a minute, there, Blake, there is an error in your outline. Joe just read the text and it was all about Jesus. Now you're going to go and say that it was all about God? Who was it? God or Jesus? Super cheesy setup. But, of course, the answer is yes. This is important context. All throughout John 9 and actually throughout the entire Gospel of John, Jesus is revealing himself to be God in the flesh. In fact, immediately before John 9, at the very end of John 8, uh, Jesus reveals himself to be God with one of the most bone-chilling statements in Scripture. You guys may remember Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and Jesus says something like, you know, Abraham saw my time and he was glad. And the Pharisees with him go, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Abraham lived thousands of years ago. And, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And in that statement, Jesus is not only saying, I pre-existed Abraham, who lived thousands of years ago. He's not only claiming to be eternal, but he actually takes the very personal name that God describes himself as in the Old Testament, which is I am, or Yahweh. And as we will see all throughout this entire series, the Pharisees and many others, they didn't recognize him. They refused to believe that he was really God in the flesh. Are you really God in the flesh, Jesus? What do we see in John 9? Jesus proves his deity. He proves his deity. Not only does he say, I am the light of the world, which reflects Genesis 1-3, in which God says, let there be light and there was light. But get this, just as God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, so here in John 9, Jesus forms, reforms this man's eyes with the dust of the ground. You may have thought that was really weird when he like spit on the ground and made saliva and made bud. This is Jesus reenacting the creation narrative. He's proving to be God. He's showing his deity. Therefore, my outline. Why can we have hope in times of darkness? Because with us in the darkness is the God who sees, the God who saves, and the God who stays. Okay, now let's dive into these, starting with the God who sees. Notice again verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw 
a man blind from birth. Have any of you seen the TV show The Chosen by chance? Okay, a lot of people nodding their heads. The Chosen, it is a TV series based on Jesus' life, so it's historical fiction. Uh, there are many scenes in, in the show that are uh, reflections of gospel narratives. Many other scenes are just total creative liberty, so it's not pretending like this is exactly the way that things happened. But one of my favorite scenes in the show is a scene of Nathaniel from early in season two. Nathaniel is experiencing deep suffering. He even seems hopeless, and so he wanders all alone into the wilderness, which I guess is what you do when you seem when you feel hopeless. You just wander into the wilderness, and he sits down beneath a fig tree, and then in clear, deep distress, he cries out to God, and he says, God, do you see me? Do you see me? And then he waits for God's response. Maybe you've been there. Then, after a long silence, nothing happens. No response from God, no sign from God, total silence. So eventually, Nathaniel just gets up and leaves. A few days later, Nathaniel meets Jesus for the very first time. They've never met before. Uh, and this interaction does come straight from the Gospel of John. Jesus greets him in a curious way. He says, Ah, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel, clearly surprised that Jesus somehow recognizes him, even though they've never met before, he says, How do you know me? Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. There is something about being seen and known by Jesus that is incomparably comforting. There is something about having a Savior who sees, who sees and knows it all, all of our pain, all of our fears, all of our sins, all of our insecurities, all of our history, all of the times that we have been mistreated or misunderstood. There is something about having a Savior who sees, who knows it all, and is committed to walking with us in love, even through the darkness, that is deeply fortifying. Now, praise God, as we will see in John 9, in the text, Jesus does a lot more than see our suffering, but let's thank God today that he does not do any less than that. Jesus does not walk up to sufferers and start slapping on promises like band-aids without first taking the time to really see and understand our pain. Perhaps there have been times in life when someone tried to start fixing you or giving you advice or maybe just trying to get you to just move on from your suffering without first taking the time to see and understand your pain. This is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is a savior who sees. There is no part of you or of your suffering 
that Jesus does not see and know completely. Why can we have hope in times of darkness? First, because with us in the darkness is the God who sees. Now, before we move on to the next point, there's one other thing that's worth noting from this passage. According to this text, Jesus does not only see our suffering, but he also helps us see our suffering for what it really is. Or you might say he clarifies our suffering and where it comes from. Uh, Look back at verses two two through three, if you would. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Isn't it interesting that the disciples do not ask, Jesus, did someone sin (laughs) to bring about this suffering? They don't ask that. They assume it. Notice what they say, Rabbi, who sinned? You only have two options, Rabbi. It was either this man or it was his parents. Clearly, God is trying to get back at someone for their sin. Clearly, God is trying to teach someone a lesson, you know, kind of stick it to them, right? I mean, why else would suffering happen? Jesus' response gives vital clarity to Christians living in times of darkness and suffering. In particular, Jesus' words invite sufferers to step out from beneath the crushing weight of two deadly assumptions. Assumption number one, all of your suffering is a direct consequence of your personal sin. Jesus says, no. Not true. While all of our sin has consequences, not all of our suffering is a consequence of our sin. Some of our suffering is unfortunately the consequence of someone else's sin. Much of the suffering we experience in life is simply the result of living in a fallen, broken world. Miscarriages. Cancer, disability, blindness. Jesus says it is wrong to assume that these things are the direct consequence of someone's personal sin, and I want to free sufferers from living with the guilt of that. So that's assumption number one. All of your suffering is a direct consequence of your personal sin. Assumption number two. Your suffering is a sign that God has left you. Or he's getting back at you. Or he's done with you. He's done using you. No more plans for you. Notice again verse 3. Jesus says that God intends to use suffering not to retaliate against us, not to push us away from him, but rather to display his works in us. God is not like a cruel parent, or perhaps you might think of Harry Potter's aunt and uncle, God is not like a cruel parent who locks up their kid in a closet or in the cellar and says, I'll come back for you once you learn your lesson, and then leaves. 
Rather, time and time again throughout Scripture, God draws near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to those in darkness. That's why the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me even in my darkness. Christian, if you are here today or listening online, struggling to understand all of the reasons for your suffering. Let John 9 be a comfort to you. The fact that you do not know all of the reasons for your suffering does not mean you are doing something wrong. It means you're not God. And while Jesus does not tell us all of the reasons for our suffering, he does want to free us from these deadly assumptions and he invites us to rest in the God who walks with us in our darkness and who will one day defeat darkness fully and forever. Why can we have hope in times of darkness? Because with us in the darkness is a God who sees. Secondly, with us in the darkness is a God who saves. And we see this in verses 8 through 31 and 39 through 41. Now we won't have time to read and discuss that big chunk in the middle, 8 through 31, but Joe read much of that earlier, and I'm going to give you all a cliff notes. Now this is up on the screen. This is pretty much what happens in verses 8 through 31. It goes something like this. Blind man gets healed. Pedestrians get confused. <laughs> Pharisees get angry. You'll see that a lot in the Gospel of John. I don't, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Pharisees get angry, parents get afraid, Pharisees get angry, blind man gets snarky, he's like, oh, do you guys want to become his disciples too? Not the right button to push. (laughs) Pharisees get super angry, blind man exalts Christ, Pharisees blow their top (laughs) and cast him out. Now, I highlighted the Pharisees because this is part of the theme of, of the series, Regardless of the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is from God, as the blind man testifies in verse 33, the Pharisees refuse to believe it. They, ironically, are the blindest people in this whole story. Completely blind to who Jesus is, completely blind to their desperate need for him. Lord, let that not be us. And this brings us to verses 39 through 41, if you would follow as I read. And here Jesus explains the ultimate meaning of the blind man's healing. I don't have this in my manuscript, but when, uh, when Jesus does healings in the New Testament, he's doing, I think he's doing three things. He's, he loves the people that he's healing, and he wants to see them healed. He's giving us a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, right? He's pulling back the curtain for a moment, and he's, he's saying this is what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth when you are completely healed physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. But thirdly, Jesus, when he does a physical healing, he's trying to communicate a spiritual reality. And that's what he's, he's going to show us here in verses 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, Jesus says to those who say, nah, we don't need a savior, we can see just fine on our own, no sin problem for us. Jesus says, 
your guilt remains. But to those who admit their darkness and admit their spiritual blindness and admit, Lord, I am a sinner. I have a desperate need for you. I have a desperate need for you, the Savior. And Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. If that's you, Jesus says two words, no guilt. No guilt for you. I have taken away your guilt and shame. And here is the irony of Jesus being the light of the world. To those who hide in darkness, their sin will be exposed. But to those who humbly step into the light of Christ, their sins will be covered. You might wonder, do you have a biblical illustration of this somewhere? Oh, I do. (laughs) In the last chapter, in John 8. So, okay. So, uh, Jesus says twice in John, I am the light of the world. One happens here in John 9, as we read. Another one happens in John 8. Actually, the John 8 one is probably the most famous reference. It's probably the one that you see everywhere where, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Beautiful verse. That's verse 12 in, in John 8. Now, you might wonder, well, what comes right before it in verses 1 through 11? Oh, let's read it. Let's see what comes right before it. And as we read, as I read this, ask yourself, what does this narrative tell us about what, what, what it means that Jesus is the light of the world? What does this narrative tell us about what it looks like to be exposed by the light of Christ versus what it looks like to be exposed by the light of the world? Let me read for us. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Scholars note, probably naked. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? But they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay, a lot of nasty stuff happening here, right? The Pharisees, first, they were using this woman to accomplish their own sort of weird, twisted agenda with Jesus, so completely objectifying this woman, no concern for her well-being, but also, like, where is the man who was also caught in adultery? Like, there's so much just twisted stuff happening here. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 7. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground, with his finger, some say that he wrote on the ground in part to not shame the woman by looking at her. When they kept on questioning him, he, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice that the Pharisees wanted to expose this woman's uh, sin in order to shame her and kill her. Meanwhile, Jesus' exposure took away her shame and gave her the light of life, a life liberated from sin. 
Whereas the world's light is shame causing, Jesus' light is shame covering. Whereas Satan makes us stand naked in the shame of our sin, Jesus hung naked on the cross to take away our shame and to free us from sin. In John 8 through 9, Jesus is welcoming us to step in to his shame-covering, guilt-removing light. He's welcoming us to admit our sin and blindness, to repent of our sin, acknowledge our brokenness to him and to one another, and to walk in the light of his grace and healing. As Paul David Tripp put it, he said, run to the light. It is not to be feared. Yes, it is the light of exposure, but what will be exposed has already been covered by the blood of the one who exposes it. Hiding in the darkness might give us a temporary facade of safety, but it only exacerbates our fear and shame. It is only by walking in the light of Christ that we can find true freedom and grace and life. And praise the Lord that Jesus is the safest person in the universe to be exposed to. Why can we have hope in times of darkness? Because with us in the darkness is the God who sees, the God who saves, and third and finally, the God who stays. We see this in verses 32 through 38. So if you would follow along as I read. The man who had been blind said, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man, Jesus, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees answered him, you were born in utter sin. (laughs) I kind of like to read it like that. (laughs) You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. In other words, they rejected him. They they left him. They abandoned him. They outcasted him. And, And by the way, they, they weren't just outcasting him from their presence. They were outcasting him from the community. This was not a rejection from a job offer, for example, which is extremely difficult. But this is, this is the rejection of uh, the community, the entire community. So it would be like if you can't go to church anymore, you can't go to small groups anymore, you can't, uh, people from church see you in the streets and they quickly like turn their eyes and walk away from you. It was a shameful rejection that he was experiencing. So if you just imagine that too, I mean, he was blind, probably felt the rejection of that, but then he got healed and he's like, whoa, this is awesome. And then like two seconds later, he's rejected from the community. Amazing. But notice what, how Jesus responds, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus heard that this man was rejected and abandoned, so he took the initiative to find him and to draw near to him. When everyone else abandoned this man, Jesus stayed. And we'll come back to that. Verse 36, the man said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, which is a beautiful phrase for multiple reasons, might I add and it is he who is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You might be able to picture a situation when someone sees you in your pain and then they leave you. Um, That's kind of, remember, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan where the religious folks are walking on one side of the road, they see this man in their pain and they they just leave. 
You might also be able to sit, picture a situation when someone sees you in your pain, and then they save you or deliver you in some way, but then they leave you. This is actually what the Good Samaritan did, and no one blames him for this, but remember, he went and he saw the man in his pain, he delivered him to a place of safety, and then he left. In John 9, Jesus reveals himself as someone who does not see us and then leave us. He also doesn't even see us and then save us at your conversion and then leave us, but rather he reveals himself as someone who sees us and saves us in order to stay with us forever. In the moment when this man likely felt most abandoned, Jesus stayed. Perhaps today, you are confident in some ways that God sees you. You're like, yep, he sees me in my suffering. Perhaps you are even confident that he has saved you. You're like, yep, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've been saved. But you feel abandoned. What is our hope then? I love how Tim Keller put it in a sermon in 2007. So I'm just going to read you his, his quote. Part of this is edited because it was from uh, a sermon, so it's not, not from straight out of a book or anything. But this is what he said. If Jesus would not abandon you on the cross, he won't abandon you now. If he wouldn't abandon you when hell itself was coming down on him, if that did not separate his love from you, Do you think you having a bad week is going to do it? Or when bad things happen and you say, I must be abandoned, remember, if he did not abandon you then, he is not going to abandon you now. He spared nothing, not even his life for you. He put the weight of the world on his shoulders for you and you think somehow he is going to let your life go off the rails now, he is not going to leave you or deny you anything you need. This is the love you've been looking for all your life. John 9 shows us that even even if everyone else abandons us, even if we feel abandoned or rejected, Jesus stays. And if you're ever doubting that reality, you only need to look back at the cross where Jesus stayed there until your salvation was accomplished. I can't help but share one more beautiful quote by Charles Spurgeon, and this is up on the screen as well. He says, Jesus Jesus Christ was up on the cross, nailing, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people, betraying him and forsaking him and denying him, and in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, with all authority to leave, he stayed. Praise God that we do not only have a God who sees and saves, but also one who stays. Jesus did not only see us and save us in order to leave us, he sees us and saves us in order to stay with us forever. How do we respond to that? Hopefully the same way that the formerly blind man did in verse 38. He said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. May we recognize Jesus today as King and God and Savior, and may we respond to him in faith and worship. Before I pray, if you have not yet acknowledged Jesus as King and God and Savior, he is calling you to do that today. He is calling you to step into his 
shame-covering, guilt-removing light. Respond to his call today with faith and worship. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk with you afterward, or Joe Scavato or one of the pastors here would love to talk with you, um, or maybe the people you came with. Uh, There will also be prayer teams up here, I believe, afterward who would love to pray with you. That being said, let me close us in prayer. Jesus, you are God. You are King. You are Savior. We acknowledge you as those things today. And we want to respond to you with faith and with worship. Thank you, Jesus, for being a God who sees us in our suffering, who saves us from our sin, and who stays with us forever. Comfort us by these realities this week and help us to respond in joyful obedience to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord that we have a Savior who is God with us. Now, as you go, let me give the benediction. May the Lord bless you, and may he keep you, and may he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you, and may he lift up his countenance upon you, and may he give you his peace. Amen.